Well, hello, friends. Welcome to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris Taylor, and I'm glad you're listening in today. If this is your first time listening, I'd love to chat with you. So send me an email at hello at capitalcitychristian.org. Today, we wrap up a series called Necessary Sins. This series is about the sins that people try their hardest to rationalize to the point they believe they're almost necessary. We started out the series talking about lying. Then we moved on to anger, and we talked about gossip last week. Today, we're talking about lust. Lust is a battle that every good man fights, and not just men, but women as well. It's a war with extremely high stakes and a war we cannot win without God's help. Let's get right to the message with our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Good morning. I want to start off by reiterating what Tater said earlier. I am going to be talking about the sin of lust this morning, and I'm going to be somewhat straightforward. So I figure for some of you guys, you're going to figure it's at least PG-13, although I think that even our 10, 11, and 12-year-olds are getting immersed in it. Anyway, we've got some great kids' classes happening downstairs if you want to slip out and drop them off. (laughs) Vern Huber is our connections pastor, and Vern is a dork. If you were here last week, you'll know he preached, and he pretty well hosed me. See, we're in this series we're calling Necessary Sins, right? There's some sins that nearly everybody would call evil, always wrong, never, never right. Rape, always evil. Murder, always wrong. Abusing a child, always wrong. But there are other sins that we consider more respectable, more understandable, even necessary sometimes, we would argue. I kicked the series off by talking about lying. Is it wrong to... Uh, lie to protect somebody? Is it wrong to tell just a little white lie to protect yourself? Then I talked about anger. Anger is not always wrong. In fact, there are times when anger is actually required, but way too often we cross the line. And Vern told you that I preached those two sermons because I'm good at them both. (laughs) I'm good at lying, he said, and I'm good at anger. He's right, but he's a dork, okay? (laughs) And then last week, Vern preached on gossip, And because of what he said about me last week, you know he's good at gossip, right? But Vern made it sound like we were assigning the themes to whomever on our staff was good at this stuff. And this week's theme is lust. I don't want you guys to think that I'm going to preach about lust because I'm good at it. I can assure you guys that as a holy man, I don't know anything about lust except what I read in books, okay? Although I did preach the sermon online. Anyway, all I did is I sat down with Vern last week and he told me what to say. (laughs) Right. Now, if you're a Jesus follower, you're going to need to lean in pretty hard because we're going to look at some pretty important stuff for us Jesus followers. If you're not a Jesus follower, this stuff's probably going to sound pretty weird to you. In fact, it might give you one more reason to push Jesus away. In fact, some of you Jesus followers in the room might be tempted to reconsider your decision about following Jesus by the time we're done. But actually, this stuff works, even for those who are not Jesus followers yet, because our Creator is smart, and He knows what works best for His kids, for all of His kids. So, do you remember the first time you lost at least a piece of your innocence. Can you put your finger on that? Maybe you were a kid and your opposite sex friend wanted to play doctor. Maybe you were walking through a mall and all of a sudden you were just dying to know what Victoria's secret was, right? Maybe your innocence was stolen from you by someone who should have protected you, someone you trusted. 
But something shifts in us. I remember a cartoon. I saw this cartoon years ago, but it was really funny. Uh, This little boy was riding in his car with his mom, and this convertible goes on by, and some cute chick is standing up in the convertible, topless, showing off. And the kid points over and says, Mom, she's not wearing a seatbelt. That's the innocence of childhood. And then something changes, right? For me, it was the fourth or fifth grade. I'm not sure exactly when. I remember where I was standing on the Monroe Elementary School playground, San Jose, California. It was during a recess near the corner of the building right next to the basketball courts. One of my friends had brought one of his dad's Playboy magazines. And all of us gathered around to read the articles. And some of you guys are like, there are articles? How is it that nearly everybody in this room remembers pretty much in detail the first time they saw pictures like that? How do they get seared into our brain like that? Rest of you guys, I'm not talking about us holy men. Fast forward to my freshman year of Bible college. Still relatively innocent, I suppose. I went down to the Navy base in Oakland where my two best friends from high school were rooming together in the barracks at the Naval base. I was going to stay with them that night, so they opened the door, and their room was wallpapered, floor to ceiling, with pictures that made Playboy look tame. Holy cow. I knew I shouldn't look, and I was captivated at the same time. I was studying to be a preacher. And all of a sudden, Romans 7 came alive. The Apostle Paul talks about how powerful sin can be. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that, that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't, Paul says. I want to do what's good, but I don't. I don't want to do what's wrong, and I find myself doing it anyway. Ever been there? Felt that? See, there's a pattern that so many of us guys, and I suspect quite a few of you ladies, fall into. First, there's temptation. You're tempted to do something that you know that is wrong. And then you start rationalizing, justifying. I probably shouldn't, but I am single, and it's not going to hurt anybody. Or if my wife didn't have headaches all the time, I wouldn't have to. Or it's not like I'm actually cheating physically, And then the temptation morphs into sin. And in the moment, it feels so good. And afterwards, at least for Jesus' followers, there's this intense shame. After which time you make these promises to God. God, I'll never do it again. God, if you'll help me, I'll never do it again. You hate the guilt. And a few days later, you're tempted again, and the rationalizations start again, and you give in, and there's the excitement, and then the shame, and then the promises. And some of you guys who are sitting here who are extra holy are thinking to yourself, what in the world are you talking about? And the rest of you who are real are thinking to yourselves, I know exactly what he's talking about. Because it is nearly every good man's battle. And I said that carefully. I say nearly because I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to a few of you who perhaps don't battle lust like this, maybe haven't ever, but most guys do. 
And I'm going to call it every good man's battle because those who aren't good don't fight it. They just give in to it. They just roll around in it. Good men are the ones who fight it. And more and more, I think it's becoming a battle for a whole lot of good women. Good women, because the good men and the good women are the ones who want to fight the temptation to lust. And unfortunately, it's becoming a battle for nearly all of our kids, male and female, once they get old enough to understand, which is way more or way younger than some of you parents think. See, we live in a culture where the incitements to lust are ubiquitous. We live in a culture where lust is encouraged, excused. We live in a culture where those who fight for sexual purity are actually laughed at and mocked. Guys, being a Jesus follower is going to make you look weird sometimes. It's going to make you look weird in this one. So be it. Because here it is. This is for Jesus followers. We're Jesus followers, right? And here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, you've heard the commandment that's in the old covenant. You've heard the old covenant commandment that says you mustn't commit adultery. But I say, this is Jesus. Jesus says, I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust, and I think you're perfectly legitimate to read it, any woman who looks at a man with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And that's pretty straightforward. Because for us Jesus followers, that means we're going to have to figure out exactly what lust is and we're going to gonna have to learn how to fight it because here's what's at stake. Jesus doesn't quit there. He says, so if your eye, even if it's your good eye, causes you to lust, I want you to gouge it out and throw it away, which is weird. Because it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, guys, they didn't mean that stuff literally. The early Christians weren't known for their eye patches, right? What he meant is this. This is serious stuff. Don't blow it off. This lust will corrupt your ability to love God's kids. It's going to corrupt you, and it's going to drive a wedge between you and God. Don't blow it off. Now, if I want to go any further and start unpacking this stuff, I want to say two things very quickly about God. Because some people think stuff about God that is just messed up. They kind of treat God like he's a cosmic prude, and he's not. Here's the first thing, guys. God is way, way, way smarter than you are. You buy that? He's God. And our creator knows more about everything than any of us do. He knows what works. He knows what doesn't work. He knows what works way better than we do. Secondly, God is absolutely good. Absolutely good. He wants the very best for his kids. He wants the very best for you. Do you believe that? God wants you to have a great life, an abundant life. Do you trust that? Now listen, guys, if God is way smarter than we are, and if God wants only the best for us, then his ways will always be better than our ways. We will never outthink God. And doing life his way will always lead to a better life than doing life contrary to his way. You can trust him. So when you understand what God wants for you to do, do it. 
Do it whether you understand him yet or not, because he's smarter than you are. Do it whether you agree with him or not, because he's better than you are. He's God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start by talking about what lust is and what it comes from. And then I'm going to talk about the war with lust that every single Jesus follower is going to fight. And I'm going to talk about how to win that war. So what is it? Where does it come from? Well, one reason virtually every man struggles with lust is that a powerful sexual desire was planted in every single one of you by God. You see, strong sexual passions are normal. That's how we were made by God. It's right there in the creation story. God introduces Eve to Adam. Eve is standing there naked. And a pretty good translation of what Adam says is something like this. Holy cow, God, you did good. Right? That powerful sexual desire is planted in us by God and it is blessed throughout scripture. In fact, it probably played a role in your creation and it probably played a role in the creation of your kids. Sexual desire is not a bad thing. It's an appetite planted in us by God. I know some things are just wrong. We feel guilt because we've done something wrong. We've sinned. There's anger because someone has sinned. Greed is a self-centered sin. All jealousy is a self-centered sin. Sexual desire is an appetite. It's God-given, kind of like hunger. You can feed your hunger, but eventually you're going to get hungry again, right? You can satisfy your sexual appetite today, but the desire is going to come back. That's the way God made us. You don't eliminate a a God-given appetite. You try to control it, to manage it, to keep it from controlling you. So the appetite we call sexual desire is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a gift from our God, a wonderful gift. You buy that? But it's a real short hop between sexual desire and lust. In part because we have an enemy, Satan, who is masterful at taking what is meant for good and using it to cause harm. He loves to twist those things that are good into something that is destructive. He takes our appetite for food and he twists it into gluttony. He takes our appetite for rest and turns it into a laziness. He takes our desire for fun and he uses it to get us to neglect our work and our family and our God. He takes so many good things and he turns them into addictions and he is great at taking sexual desire and twisting it into lust. Now one of the ways he does that is just through confusing us. Part of the problem is that there's so much real confusion about when legitimate sexual desire crosses the line into lust. We're not sure which thoughts are okay and which thoughts aren't. Is it okay to notice that that girl is absolutely gorgeous? Sometimes your wives would tell you no. But not to notice would require that either we be blind or brain dead. Is it okay to notice her cleavage? Is noticing her cleavage the problem? Or does the problem come when we allow our eyes to linger there? Or our minds to linger there? Is it appropriate to tell a girl who's not your wife that she looks great? Is it a compliment or is it flirting? Is it sweet? Or in our world, is it harassment? It's 
become difficult even to understand what's appropriate with our daughters. Is it okay to romp and wrestle and play games and tease? And when we have questions like that, we're not sure who we can talk to, how much we should say, how much we reveal about the confusion inside us. It's confusing. So when does it morph from a God-honoring playfulness or a God-honoring appreciation of beauty or a God-honoring sexual desire into a God-dishonoring lust? When does it cross that line from God's perspective? Because bottom line, it doesn't matter where I think that line is. What matters is where he thinks the line is because he's God and we're Jesus followers, right? What matters is where he says that line is. Let me give you some possibilities for guidelines. You ponder these things. How do you know when it's lust? First one really isn't a guideline. It's just something that you need to keep in mind. Guys, temptation isn't sin. Temptation is not sin. In our world, our eyes are going to see things where they don't need to linger. That's temptation. When you let your eyes linger, you're going to cross the line from temptation into lust. I don't know exactly when that happens, but if our eyes linger too long, we'll cross the line. Temptation isn't the sin. It's what you do with it. Martin Luther said one time that you can't keep the circles, I mean the birds from circling overhead, but you can keep them from landing on your shoulders, right? Second piece, how do you know that it's lust? Well, sometimes we think that it's okay to think it as long as you don't do it right? It's okay to think it as long as you don't do it, but God doesn't agree. How about this? If what you're thinking about would be a sin if you did it, you've probably already crossed the line. That's what Jesus was saying in Matthew 5 under the old covenant. Adultery, physical adultery was a sin, right? Thinking about it, not necessarily wrong. Under Jesus, under the new covenant, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. Which means, I think, if it would be a sin to do it, it's also a sin to keep on thinking about doing it. Third piece, how do you know it's lust? Well, even good sexual passion becomes a sin when we let it become an obsession. An obsession, anything good, anything good can become an obsession. Eating food is not a sin. Obsessing over food is gluttony. Taking a nap is not a sin. Obsessing over your rest can morph into laziness. Wanting sex is no sin. Obsessing over sex is. Because every good thing can become a God thing. Did you hear that? Every good thing can become a God thing. Some people become so obsessed with sex that it gets in the way of living a God-honoring life at home, at work, and at church. Fourth piece. How do you know it's lust? Sexual passions become sin whenever, whenever we start using people or abusing people for our own gratification. When it's all about me. And it really doesn't matter that much to me how it affects you. Listen, guys, whether it's with your thoughts or your actions, we Jesus followers don't use people, we don't abuse people for our own gratification. You hear this in our kids a lot. You'll also hear it in our adults. You'll hear our kids say, if you love me. 
If you love me, it's one of Satan's greatest lies. If you love me, you're going to gratify me, even if you don't want to. If you love me, you're going to satisfy me, even if it compromises your life with God. Even if it brings you guilt and shame. Even if it drives a wedge between you and your family, if you love me. Girls, if any guy uses that on you, slap him in the face and walk away. He doesn't love you. He cares more about himself than he cares about you. He's sinning against God and he's sinning against you. Do you believe that? Fifth piece, how do you know when it becomes lust? It becomes a sin anytime it leads you to engage in anything that dishonors our God. I know in our world there's some things we have stopped calling sin, but it's not their call. We pass out condoms to our kids and we call it safe sex. It's not safe sex, it's lust, it's sin. We're telling our kids that you can blow off a God-honoring purity. We cohabit, justifying it with a dozen excuses. We claim that it's smart. It's giving in to lust and God calls it sin. A man feels sexual desire for another man. A woman feels sexual desire for another woman. And we rationalize that a person has to follow their lust, right? And if anyone disapproves, we reprimand them for their intolerance. God calls it sin. Because we're not animals. We don't have to follow our hearts. We don't have to follow our lusts. Because we know that our hearts can take us to some very, very, very dark places. We kind of frown on adultery. But only until our marriage partner is weary of each other. We feel that we feel that sexual desire for someone else and we start rationalizing our lusts. God calls it sin. We celebrate what God calls immoral on our TV and our movies and our music. We revel in our lust. We're exhilarated by it. We call it liberation and freedom. God calls it sin. You see, the word of God is crystal clear on some sexual sins. There is no sex outside the marriage bed. There's no living together before marriage. It doesn't matter what you feel. You don't choose a lifestyle that God prohibits. Porn is wrong. God is clear on those kinds of things. And it doesn't matter whether we agree with God or not. God's smarter than we are. And he's God. And he's perfectly good. And in the end, all he wants is what is best for you, right? And he will always be right. Can you accept that? Okay, let's move on. Nearly every single guy, and I think probably more and more of you ladies, and without a doubt, most all of our kids are going to fight a war. We're going to fight a war to keep a God-given appetite from morphing into sin. So I want to talk about that war. And because we live in a world that pushes God away, because we have an enemy that keeps on trying to push us away from God, there's going to be some real tough battles, and you're going to lose some of them. Thank God for his amazing grace. But before I talk about some of the strategies on how to win in this war, I want to make four observations. I'm going to make them very simple, very short. Observation number one, guys, our battle against lust is going to be a lifelong battle. Do you believe that? As long as we live in this world, 
It's a war that we're going to fight. So be it. The difference between a good man and a bad man is not that a good man has won the war. It's that he keeps fighting. And bad men stop fighting it. Some guys stop fighting for purity. They stop trying to be God-honoring. Guys, we Jesus followers don't quit, even though it's a lifelong battle. Observation two, it is frequently all too often a lonely battle. All of us guys are fighting a war, but very few guys want to talk about it. Most of the time we feel too much shame. We don't realize that other good men struggle like we do. We're in this together. There is nothing that you are battling that others in this room have not struggled with too. We feel alone. We are not. Observation three. Any man, any man can lose this war. All of you can lose this war. I have seen men that I have honored that are way better than me fall. None of us is so strong, so pure that we can't fall. In fact, that's the kind of pride that makes us susceptible to falling. Every one of us can reach a point where we will sell our souls, abandon our families, throw away everything we stand for because we're drifting down a path that takes us farther and farther away from God. We can lose this war, so we have to guard our hearts. But, number four, any man, any man can win this war. Every single one of you can win in this war with God's help. I've seen guys who are pretty far gone find victory in God. Here's God's promise. This is his promise to every single one of us. He says, there is no temptation in your life that's different from what others experience. And God is faithful. God is absolutely faithful. He will not allow any temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. Do you believe that? <clears throat> With God's help, we can control our sexual passions because we are men created in the image of God. We are not animals. We do have strong appetites, strong passions, but God gave us this free will and he gives us this Holy Spirit to live inside his kids so we can choose to do right even when we want to do wrong. Any man can lose this war, but with God's help, every one of us can win. So how? Let's get down to where the rubber hits the road. It's going to be a war. The stakes are high, so how do we win? Just some suggestions. Number one, it starts with being honest. You just got to be honest. If you're struggling with lust, be honest with God. Just be honest. Be honest with yourself. Don't try excusing your sin. Don't try rationalizing your sin. Just be honest. Number two, don't feed it. Don't feed it. If, you're struggling, if you struggle with lust when you listen to certain kinds of music, then quit listening to that kind of music, you dork. Right? If you struggle with lust when you watch a certain kind of TV show, <laughs> quit watching that kind of TV show, dork. Right? you got to throw in that word. This isn't rocket science. Quit feeding your lust. If you drift to certain sites on the internet when you're surfing alone at night, then quit surfing alone at night. Cut out the stuff in your life that you know feeds your lust. Because this is serious stuff, guys. This can hurt the people you love and it can drag you away from God. 
Number three, use diversion. The Bible says, fix your hearts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. That's Philippians 4.8. Which means if you're struggling with impure thoughts, put your mind on something else. Don't just try battling it and taking control of it. Put your mind on something else. One of the best ways to do that is to use scripture. Find a scripture that gives you strength. And when temptation comes, pull that scripture out and ponder it. God can use his word to break the power of temptation. Number four, find a confidant. This one's tough because we guys don't like anyone to know how we struggle. But oftentimes it's going to be really hard to win this war on our own. You need to find a solid friend who will listen without judging and who will hold you accountable. By the way, that there's also some software that you can put on your phones, your computers that will hold you accountable. If that can help, and if you can't find a solid accountability program, send me a note and I'll send you a couple links. Number five, count the cost. Count the cost. Look around. You have seen the damage that sexual sin has caused people that you care about, right? You can name names. Well, be honest about the damage that your sin is going to cause the people you love. And be honest about the kind of damage that your sexual sin can do between you and your God. Count the cost. The last strategy that I'm going to give this morning, there are others, and this one's actually the most important. Pursue God. Pursue God. Too often we try to be tough. We try to be self-sufficient. And I'm just telling you guys, there are some sins that are stronger than we are. Lust is one of them. If you want real power, pursue God. Because it's going to take his strength and his wisdom and his transforming power to win this war. Get close to him. Do you trust him? Do you trust that God is smarter than you are? Do you trust that God wants only the best for you? Do you trust him? Lying, anger, gossip, lust. We push back on God basically because we don't trust him. We treat these like they are necessary sins because we don't trust him. Will you trust your amazingly powerful and amazingly good God? We've wrapped up this little series around two incredibly powerful verses from the book of Psalms. David says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. You don't have to tell God that. He knows. You're just making yourself open to that. David says, point out anything in me that offends you. Don't just convict me about the stuff that I know that's wrong inside of me, God. Show me the stuff that I'm blind to. Show me the stuff in me that I've accepted my own justifications and rationalizations and excuses for. Because listen, there are things in you that you think are okay, but God doesn't. Do you really want to know what God sees? Because sometimes it's the sins in us that we don't see that cause the greatest damage. So Paul says, God, point out anything in me that offends you. You know why? Because here's what's at stake. 
because I need you to lead me along the path of everlasting life. Real life. Do you know that uh, during at least the sermon part of this, at least part of the sermon, one of our elders has been over in that prayer room. He's been praying for every single one of you. He's been praying that as God's Spirit nudges you, you'll have the wisdom and the courage to respond. We're going to pray together right now. And when we get done praying together, if you want to pray with him, he's going to be in that prayer room. If you want to pray with us, we're going to hang around down here at the end of the service. We'd love to talk to you. Or somewhere in front of you, you'll see a card like this. It says, I have decided. It's got a blue top on it. I've decided to make a decision to follow Jesus, and I'd like to talk about how. I'm interested in baptism. I'd like to talk to a minister. Mark one of those things, put your name and contact information on this card, and we'll come to you. We'd love to talk to you. Guys, if the Holy Spirit is nudging you, do something about it. Don't just sit. Let's do something. Let's pray together. Father, we know that in your omniscience, you know everything that is knowable. You know every single one of us, you know every single thing about us. You know our struggles, you know our victories, you know our failures. We also know that you are an amazing God of grace. Every time we fail, you're there to forgive. We don't understand why, but that's what you've promised. That's what you showed us in Jesus Christ, and for that we are grateful. Father, we've talked about some sins that we battle with every day, lying, anger, gossip, today lust. These are the kind of sins that suck the joy out of our life, that suck the life out of life. That oftentimes corrupt our families, that corrupt us, that corrupt our life with you. And we want our life with you to be without those kind of wedges. We want our families to be rich and pure. We want your best. Give us the wisdom to to do more than say that we want it, but actually to take those steps to make it so. For our failures, we ask your grace, your forgiveness. And it is so powerful and it is so present. We're just grateful. We're here to ask for your strength, your wisdom. For fighting these battles alone, Lord, we pray that we'll find allies, good people, know that good people struggle and we want to be called alongside. And so I pray, Lord, that as your spirit has nudged in this room today, that everyone here who has something to do, that they'll take those steps to get it done. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Stand and sing.